You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. There's a story in Greek mythology, perhaps some of you know it, it's the story of two cities fighting against each other. Uh, The city of Greek, in Greek mythology, the people of Greece and the people of Troy. And the problem is, nine days of battle and seemingly no result of a winner and a loser. And so, under the leadership of one of the leaders of the people of Troy, Odysseus comes up with a plan to build a large statue of a horse, but makes the statue of that horse hollow so that himself and some other Trojan soldiers could crawl up into it and hide, not being discovered. And then would then tell the other Greek soldiers to get into the ship and sail away as if they had left. But they leave behind, in addition to this one monumental statue of a horse, they leave behind a man named Sinon. When the Trojans came out to marvel at the huge creation, Sinon pretended to be angry saying that the Greeks had left him and he was somehow abandoned and now he had turned on them and told them that the statue that was left behind was of no issue. In fact, it would bring them, the Trojans, good luck. Counting this to be victorious, counting them that they had defeated the Greeks, the Trojans now bringing that statue into their village, into their place. Then later that night, while they're either asleep or drunk, Sinon gets out and opens up the hatch in that Trojan horse, letting out Odysseus and the other Greek soldiers who then overrun the city and declare victory, having slaughtered the people inside. A familiar story perhaps with some of you. A story that I think illustrates well the conversation I want us to have this morning as a church. You see, many local churches can think they are well-established. Perhaps their buildings indicate such. Perhaps their history illustrates such, that they are well-established. Nothing could happen to them that might undermine the sustainability and the growth of that church. And yet, over time... An enemy comes within, surprised and unexpected, that enemy from within destroys many local churches. The enemy that I'm speaking about today is the enemy of sin and how sin can destroy many churches. Now, some of you might now be thinking this morning, well, wait a minute, are you saying that those of us who have sinned should not come to church? By no means, by no means. Paul, the apostle himself, says in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and 25, that he himself struggles. 
He knows the things he should not do that he's doing, and he knows the things that he's not doing that he should be doing. And he feels that inter-turmoil, that Christian civil war. And is it not true that the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints? Again, this is true. But these type of text representations and or adages to be told to others misrepresent the full picture of what a church is. And this is what I want to address today. This morning, I'm beginning a two-part series titled, Church Discipline, a church that listens to Jesus and cares for each other. In these next two weeks in our study, we're going to learn through what is an often neglected, if not completely misunderstood topic that's so biblically normal, but so culturally absent in so many churches today. It makes us wonder, have we been reading from the same Bible, thinking the same way as Jesus does about His church? Starting in the book of, excuse me, starting in the month of September, we'll be in the book of Hosea together for that time, but for these two Sundays, we will be in these texts together. Now, let me just tell you at the outset, the main point of what we're going to learn together this morning is the following. A church that doesn't provide care for its people and at times correction is a church that does not truly love its people nor demonstrate obedience to Christ bring to the witness stand of conversation, let me represent to you one author, Jonathan Lehman, who writes the following. What would you think of a coach who instructs his players but never drills them? Or a math teacher who explains a lesson but never corrects her students' mistakes? Or a doctor who talks about health but ignores cancer? You would probably say that all of them are doing half their job. Athletic training requires instructing and drilling. Teaching requires explaining and correcting. Doctoring requires encouraging health and fighting disease, right? Okay. Well, what would you think about a church that teaches and disciples but doesn't practice church discipline? Does that make sense to you? I assume it makes sense to many churches because every church teaches and disciples, but so few practice church discipline. The problem is making disciples without discipline makes, us, makes as much sense as a doctor who ignores tumors. Now, admittedly, we're coming into a conversation that for a lot of you requires context. Context to establish a foundation of understanding, a reference that we can point to to say, okay, that's what we're talking about. So, for example, if I use the term even in the title, hey, church discipline, the question is, first of all, not what is discipline. The first question is, what is a church? What is a church? If I was to ask you that question and have you write it on a piece of paper, what would your answer indicate? I imagine a room like this with this many people, we'd have a variety of answers, the church is not fundamentally a building that needs good facilities and better management, nor is it an organization that needs better structure, nor is it fundamentally a program that needs better production. 
while there are aspects of these features that are certainly true with churches in the West particularly, it's not how the New Testament comes at defining the church. Let me give you this by way of consideration. A church is fundamentally a group of people known as a congregation marked, how? By their commitment to Christ and to one another. The challenge today that I find I have as not just a pastor, just as a fellow Christian, is to recover for so many Christians the doctrine, the teaching of the church. What is the church? Why did God give us the church? Does the conversation simply stop at sinners saved by a Savior and then wait by and by until Christ returns for them or they die before then? Or does God intend them to know one another and to be gathered in community of care with each other? Now, with your Bibles, let's look at some text together. First of all, 1 Corinthians. Let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you are not familiar with the Bible and you want to just listen in, that's fine. If you want a copy, we've got them available for you for free at the Welcome Center. Some of them are back at the pews in front of you. At Grace Church, we want to make sure that whatever we believe, the Bible is what it actually teaches. You even heard Pastor Chris say this about what is it that we believe about God. We gave a summary of that belief in condensed fashion, but he said very clearly that belief is to be understood within the context. What does the Bible say? Not what does Eric say? Not what do our parents say? Not what does the culture say? Not does what our sensibilities say? What does the actual Word of God say? 1 Corinthians, Paul, writing to this church in the city of Corinth, is dealing with these divisions in the church. And they've got divisions. They're, they've got this of Cephas, of chapter 1, of, of Paulos, of Paul. They've got their cliques. They're an immature church. They've picked already their favorite leaders. Paul is correcting this. He's talking about the power of the gospel, how Christ died, what he died for. Chapter 3 starts dealing with divisions in the church. And what I want you to see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, he describes the church as this field. And it says there in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And then he moves into this conversation about building. Verses 10 through 15, how the body of Christ, Christians, are the building and how we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 16 and 17, look at what he says there. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, just to be clear, the context of 1 Corinthians 3, he's saying to Christians, you are God's temple. What does that mean? Well, first of all, this is not some verse to take out of context and say, hey, you shouldn't have caffeine, you're God's temple. Say no to nicotine, you're God's temple. That's not what this verse is talking about. You choose those things, that's great. Pursue wisdom, that's fine. It's not the issue. What it's talking about here is a fundamental change from how the people of God in the Old Testament 
thought of the temple, rightly so, as a geographic place in a particular city, in a particular country, that you would turn back to to offer particular sacrifices through a particular priest at a particular time of the year. And all that has been destroyed and torn down now that Christ has been crucified and resurrected. And now the temple is not a place, it's a people. He tells the people, you are God's holy temple. And look at that sort of description he gives there, the significance of that. God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. And then again in verse 17, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. To identify with God as your father is to identify with the church as your people. But not just by association, but by commitment and prioritization. Turning over in our Bibles from 1 Corinthians to the book of Ephesians, just turn to the right a couple of books. You get to 2 Corinthians, you get to Galatians. Next after Galatians is the book of Ephesians. Picking up on this theme, same author, different audience, different city, same lesson though, nothing new here. The context, as he describes their conversion in verses 1 to 10, he gets into verses 11 through 22, dealing with how the fact that, hey, you guys always to be enemies and not get along, now you get along. Jews and Gentiles, now you get along, you're all together. Look at what he says in verses 16 and following. Why did Christ do all this? To reconcile us, verse 16, both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So people who are raised in non-religious homes, Gentile homes, non-Jewish homes, and people raised in Jewish homes and were taught the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 18, for through him, meaning Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So now we're not just a temple, we're not just a family, we're part of a household. Verse, eight, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole thing rests and falls on Jesus. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. There it is again, in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, how sweet this is to see what you otherwise might miss in your individuality, which is that you're a part of a people that is profound and how it displays the wisdom of God to the watching world. And now He takes sinners like you and I and redeems us and changes us and puts us together in community in a group that we would never have probably naturally picked. I would imagine there are many people here this morning that would not be here this morning with the people that are also here this morning if it was not for Christ and you. The hope of our glory. Still in the book of Ephesians, jump ahead, two chapters, three chapters, chapter five. The context, Paul is talking to wives and husbands. Referring to Christ as being the head of the church. His body, Himself, its Savior, verse 23 of Ephesians 5. Look now, if you would, 
at verse 25, when he's talking about husbands, he gives this comparison. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, referring to the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh and nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. Friends, the sweetness of this is not to be missed on us this morning. Christ is our head. We are members of this body together. One more text to answer the question, what is a church? Go to 1 Peter. So you're going further to the right in your Bibles, not quite to the end of Revelation. You come back to Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter. So you're in 1 Peter chapter 2, different author, different audience, but the same themes. Look at what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's encouraging these Christians who are going through some really difficult days. Look at what he says in verse 1. Chapter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've, you've tasted the Lord is good. Verse 4, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe and for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word and they were as they were destined to do. Verse 9, here's the key. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, so those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, maybe that's still your practice, you go to a Roman Catholic church, you're here as a guest today. This should not be lost in you. I want to make sure you don't lose the significance of what Peter is saying here because it is world-changing. It is fundamentally different than you've ever seen or experienced maybe the context you've come from. In the Roman Catholic context, and I say this, having come from a Roman Catholic background myself, Roman Catholic context, the way that you have access to God is through a number of mediating peoples and parties. Saints, we pray to saints, the Roman Catholic teaching, and those will give us access. Or, more commonly, we interact with God through our priest. So we, we go to our priest for confession, and then he offers us forgiveness, and he maybe tells us to do some Hail Marys and our Father prayers, and accordingly, that will then get us sort of back to relationship with God. One of the things that's so beautiful, what happened in the Reformation in the 1500s, ironically, by a German priest himself named Martin Luther, was in reading the Bible consistently and realizing its significance was, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hebrews says, 
We have a great high priest with God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, and He being our high priest has, has entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all, and now we have access to God through Christ. We don't need anybody else to help us. Furthermore, what's even more profound, what Peter's saying here is, guess what all of us are who are in Christ, who are Christians? Low-key flex, priests. And I'm just saying, you might not have the collar, but straight up, you're a priest. I went to a bunch of different colleges, one of which was here, Trinity International University, South Florida campus, Central Baptist Church, now it's a downtown campus of Christ Fellowship Church. I had this crazy religious professor. I loved him. He was a wild man, my kind of people. He sometimes would wear a black shirt and a white collar, just going out in public. And never people would see him and go, oh, hi. I mean, are, are you a priest? He'd be like, I am. <laughs> I am. Oh, and then we start a conversation, and he would just get to the gospel. Yeah, you can be one too if you'd like. Wait, what's happening right now? Friends, to recognize the significance of what Peter is telling, a chosen race. Do you realize when we came into faith in Christ by surrendering our life to Him and asking Him for the forgiveness of our sins, it changed everything. Our identity, our allegiance, our aspirations, our desires, or it should have. If it didn't, it really kind of begs the question, are you maybe trying to fool yourself or fool us that you're claiming to be something that you're actually not? Well, we would want to tell you the truth of what we'd want you to tell us the truth, which is, well, maybe you're not a Christian. That's not being judgmental. That's just sort of being biblical and saying, wait a minute, not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction. And sometimes the direction is up and down and back and forth, and you're like, oh my goodness, I even just wonder, am I a Christian because I feel so bad about my sin? Ironically, that's probably a sign you're a Christian because you've got a conscience working informed by the Word of God. It's convicting you. So a church is this group of people who are seeing who they are, a congregation marked by their commitment to Christ and to one another. What are these relationships supposed to look like within a church? Local churches exist in part to protect us from the world. Christians often think that the greatest threat to their Christian life is the temptation of the world out there, like outside this building in Miami. Like they're like, they're like putting their hands together like they can't wait to jump on you. Well, in some part, that's true. Think of what John said in 1 John chapter 2. He says in verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's, it's true, it's not completely true, it's partly true that you've got to be aware of, sober-minded that the world is pressing in on you, wanting you to conform to its image, not the image of Christ. Furthermore, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And some of you are like, perfect prey. You're so exposed. And you wonder how you keep getting yourself in this mess. And you're like, really? Really? Can we, can we, I have a word? But this would be an incomplete and inaccurate picture to say that the Christian's only threat is from the world or from Satan. Sometimes the threat comes in the form of what the Bible calls the flesh. The internal desires of a Christian 
that are not yet under the lordship of Christ and are tempting that Christian, man or woman, to retreat from living for Christ and live for themselves. Galatians. Listen. Listen to what Paul tells the Galatians. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not only gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And we live by the Spirit. Let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, here's the truth. No one, and I mean no one, who is a Christian is called by God to live the Christian life alone. To cast a picture of the Christian life to being lived largely in isolation with the occasional touching points of community is to recast a vision for the Christian life that you cannot find supported here. You, you can find supported here. You can certainly find endorsed out there. But no Christian who's going to honestly, with integrity, read the Bible faithfully is going to say, hey, this is what God has for me. Like a cafeteria, I'd like, pick a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and that's fine. God loved you too much to leave you to yourself to auto-select when you want to be a part of community. That's what God intends people to have. The author of Hebrews, we don't even know who the author is. It's still a mystery to us today. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Why? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What have I done? Two things I hope. Defined a church biblically. And define what it looks like for Christians to be in community biblically. Now, for some of you, this is a point of confirmation. For others of you, this is a point of clarification. For others of you, this is a point of correction. I do not know who that belongs to. I leave that to you and the Lord. But I mean for you, in good conscience, with integrity, to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to learn already this morning from what we've read and seen? Christians often want to know what's God's will for their life. They're so busy speculating on the future. Should I marry him or her? Well, just to be clear, if you're a her, him or him. Or if you're a him or her, her case we got confused there. Should I take this job? Should I move to this city? You're too often living too far in the future, you're missing the present reality of what God's calling you to do right now, right here. 
First Thessalonians 4, God's will for you, your sanctification. In the context of community, that brings us to the question, well, then what is this topic of church discipline? If it's antiquated, outdated, and largely unknown to so many Christians, can somebody please help us with the definition? Here we go. I'm going to try to help. Church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of its members and therefore its congregation. More often than not, this means correcting sin through a private word of loving admonition. Friend, I have seen what's not isolated and insignificant, but what seems to be perpetual and ongoing. We heard from Ronald, as he already read this morning in 1 Peter. Does 1 Peter not say love covers a multitude of sins? Absolutely. Does Jesus himself not say in Matthew 7, do not judge because in the same manner you judge, you'll be judged against you? Absolutely. But to take such texts out of context to neutralize any private conversations of concern is, again, to say, I like this part, I don't like this part, rip it out. I like this part, I like this part, I don't like this part, rip it out. You're creating a Christianity that's unto your liking, not unto the Savior of the church and His good design for His people. The goal is always to correct transgressions of God's law among God's people. When the Bible talks about church discipline, it involves the spiritual care of people. It's the process by which members of a church guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin and uphold the truth of the gospel. I won't ask by a show of hands because I figure I'm confident to know the question, how many of you unbeknownst to you, would want to go to a doctor who has run some medical tests on you and has learned from learning of such diagnosis of you that you've got untrained to your eye and unknown to you at this point a life-altering disease that if it's not addressed will spread throughout your entire body and you will die. That you would like to have that doctor not tell you that because that would be mean and unloving. You would rather have that doctor tell you you know what? Good to see you. Looking healthy as usual. Go get some sun. Go get some more rest. Drink some water. See you next time in 12 months. What would we call that doctor? Sham? Liar? We would, we would call that medical malpractice. And such a physician, if known by that practice, would be what? Sued. He'd be sued. She would be sued. And yet, too often, Christians would like their churches in general and their pastors in particular to practice spiritual malpractice under the banner of respect me, love me, don't judge me, leave me alone. Though you see something in me that will cause great spiritual harm, don't talk about it. And the more you do, just so you know, I'm outie. I'm gone. Here's what's sadder than that. More sad than that. My grammarians just corrected me. When churches go along, when pastors agree, that's not loving. It's really not biblical. That's doing what Paul warned Timothy would happen in 2 Timothy 4, getting teachers to surround them who will tickle their ears, who will rub their bellies, who will pat them on the back, but they won't kick them in the butt. They won't have a strong, concerning, caring, loving, biblical word because that would be, oh, judgmental and unkind. You never grow a church like that. Now, if you want a church that doesn't obey all of the Bible, sadly, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And I'll say that judgmentally. 
Every church, including Grace Church, has strengths and weaknesses. But in so much as a church is aware of what the Bible teaches, it should, with humility, in great patience, desire patiently to seek to obey the Scriptures. If not, find a new church. I say this to be fair to you, to you understand the reality of what this looks like biblically. Turn, if you would, with me to Matthew 18. You've heard from Timothy, or excuse me, from Paul. You've heard from John. You've heard from Peter. Let's hear from the Savior himself. Matthew 18. Where did this come from? Well, it really goes back to Deuteronomy. But listen to what Jesus says himself. Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, is talking about sheep who wander. What faithful shepherds do, they go after that sheep. Peter is later on in verses 21 and following, he's like, hey, how many times do we forgive people? Like seven times, kind of bonus up beyond what the, the Talmud would tell us? And Jesus is like, no, no. He basically tells them an unlimited amount of times you're going to forgive. And sandwiched right between those two texts is this text. Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. This is Jesus talking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And not as a prayer passage, but as a passage of the authority of the church to do this. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This text we'll dive into more next week, but let me just tell you for the purposes this morning, three reasons God tells us of why churches should be faithful to church discipline. Number one, to care for the Christian by restoring them. To care for the Christian by restoring them. One author, Wayne Grudem, writes the following, sin hinders fellowship among believers and with God. In order for reconciliation to occur, the sin must be dealt with. Therefore, the primary purpose of church discipline is to pursue the twofold goal of restoration of the offender to right behavior and reconciliation between believers and with God. Just as wise parents discipline their children, Proverbs 13, 24, he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. And just as God our Father disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12, 6, Revelation 3, 19, so the church in its discipline is acting in love to bring back a brother or sister who has gone astray. Reestablishing that person in right relationship and rescuing him or her from destructive patterns of life. 
The goal is to care. If someone really cares for you, that means they pursue you humbly, examining themselves first in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Second purpose of church discipline is to keep the sin from spreading to others, to keep the sin from spreading to others. Um, My wife does not like seafood, which is awfully ironic in light of the fact that she's born and raised in Miami, can't stand it, doesn't like fish, doesn't like shellfish, nothing. Every now and then if we go to a seafood restaurant, depending on the kind of restaurant it is, like a little bougie place or like a kind of keep it real place, she might, instead of getting like a fried shrimp or something, she might get some, you know, fried chicken. But the question she usually asks is, hey, is the same oil that you fry that fish in the same oil that you're going to fry my chicken in? Because I know what that means. My chicken is going to taste like fish. And I don't want that. I didn't, I didn't order fish. I ordered chicken. And I think a fair question. Some of you know what this is like. Because there's nothing worse than trying to eat chicken and feel like, I feel like I'm eating fish right now. I just feel like someone's trying to slip one by me. There are certain ingredients in dishes that don't belong. So this is what's true in the nature of the church. To have unrepentant, volitional, willing, repeating, unrepentant sin, not the presence of sin, by no means, that's always going to be true, but unrepentant, never being addressed, never being appropriately called for and responded to, is to find an ingredient that does not belong, and it makes the whole dish taste bad. 1 Corinthians 5, a man in the church is having sex with his stepmom. And Paul's like, you guys all know about this, you're not dealing with this. What's the problem here? The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, in that context, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Third and final, to give a consistent witness to the watching world. A consistent witness to the watching world. As Christians, we should care about the reputation of Christ and care about the good of non-Christians. Like, for those of you who are non-Christians here, one of your greatest challenges that you have against us as Christians, one of your accusations you make against us is, hey, I don't like Christians' hypocrisy. And let me just say at the outset, on behalf of the rest of us who are Christians, I don't either. I don't either. Your concern is my concern is Jesus' concern. But let me not mislead you to think Christians don't sin. We do. We'll be the first people to tell you that. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why we're trying to say respectfully to you, so do you. The problem is when we give you, for those of you who are non-Christians, an inconsistent witness that Jesus promises this so that we would follow him like this, and then we split that message in half. I want a Savior for my eternal life. I don't want a Lord for my present life. That's to misrepresent Christ and the witness of his word before this watching world. I'm not going to lie. There's this guy sometimes I see on YouTube. It's pretty entertaining to watch. He's a former Navy SEAL who tracks down posers 
who call themselves former SEALs, but have never served as in the Navy, let alone as Navy SEALs. And he tracks him down and basically just shames him. It's pretty entertaining. I'm not sure what that says about my form of entertainment. You're right, maybe, to be concerned. But he's calling them out because they're professing to be something, having claimed what they have an idea that they have no part of. No, I'm not advocating, nor is the Bible, advocating for shaming people by no means. But a consistent witness that lives, not perfectly, but in continued collective community together to watch and be a witness for Christ. Churches today want everyone to feel welcome, which is good, but they're often tempted to do that at the expense of what the Savior says to do as a church. I don't presume to think that Grace Church is for everyone here in Miami. Some of you, it's because it's limited geographically. It's not sustainable long term. Some of you, it's because of doctrinal disagreement. It's just not where you think the Bible explains things and you need to find a church that's more in alignment with you doctrinally. I understand that and I respect that. But my concern is that wherever you go, you would make sure that you go where you are loved, like Jesus says you are to be loved, by speaking the truth to you in love for the good of you as God's people and for the glory of God in this watching world. That's what we pray we're going to be as a church, a new young church as we are, only three and a half years old, as well as a witness for other churches to go and do likewise, that we would encourage them as they encourage us to hold up high the name of Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.